Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Welcome back to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. My guest today is Dina Toriello. Dina has spent nearly 20 years with the all-female rock band Antigone Rising. The band toured constantly for several years, racking up 260-plus shows per year. During her career, she's performed with many artists, including people like Bernie Worrell, The Go-Go's, The Almond Brothers Band, Chris Daughtry, Roseanne Cash, Christopher Jackson, Leslie Uggams, and Alice Ripley. In the studio, she's worked with people such as Robert Randolph, Lisa Loeb, Leland Sklar, and Rob Thomas. Dina's held the drum chair for the Broadway musical Head Over Heels, Magic Mike the Musical, and is currently the drummer for the new off-Broadway production of the show Little Shop of Horrors at the West Side Theater in New York City. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My guest today is Dina Toriello. She was on another podcast that I had a while ago, but we're going to be talking strictly about drums today. And I'm so glad to talk to her because she has a lot of great things to say. Welcome, Tina. Thank you, Clayton. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. How's things been going at uh, Little Shop of Horrors? Everything has been wonderful. Everybody has been healthy and people are showing up and we're selling out and we're having a blast. It's good to be back to work. What's the name of the theater that it's playing again? We are at the West Side Theater, which is 43rd and 9th. Aha. I think I saw a show there. I can't remember what it was, but it was like a a play about dating. And I went hmm. with my girlfriend and we had a really good time because they were like, it was like kind of an interactive thing. But anyway, it's a nice theater. And uh, I, I wish that you run for many, many decades. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I don't know if you want to stay there for decades, but. <laughs> we'll take it month by month. We'll hope for the best. <laughs> These trying times. We'll just, you know, month by month is good. <laughs> yes, there you go. Well, many decades ago, you started playing drums. I did. What was the first thing that said, that made you say, you know what, I want to play drums? Karen Carpenter. And you saw her on TV or where, where'd you see her? My parents were music fans and they had uh, an array of eight track tapes just to give you, you know, a clue on how far back we go on this. And the Carpenters were in the repertoire and I fell in love with Karen's voice and the music and um, somehow came to learn that she was a drummer. And after harassing my mother, God rest her soul, she managed to get tickets for us to go see them live. And during the concert, she, you know, always did a bit during the, sh- during the show where she'd be featured on drums. You know, early on in their career, when they first broke, she would be on drums the whole show. And she sang from behind the drums, and that was that. And then management decided they needed, needed her to be a front person and really get her out front to sort of lead the show. So she would only be featured for a little bit during the concert from that point on. So, um, but it was, I just remembered being blown away. And having the aha moment sitting in the audience, I think I was all of seven years old and I went, that's what I want to do. And I actually was fortunate enough to get backstage and meet them as well. So she really uh, had a tremendous impact on me 
she was as lovely and wonderful as she was talented. And really, she changed my single-handedly changed my life. That was all. That was all Karen. Wow. Did you start taking lessons shortly thereafter? When I was eight. Yep. Did you start out on a pad like many people did back then? I sure did. <laughs> For months and months and months. My drum teacher wouldn't let me anywhere near a drum set. He wanted Same to. Same me. Yeah. Old school, right? <laughs> was the pad at an angle? Did you play traditional grip? I did. <laughs> it was a little little block of wood with rubber yes. on it, and it was angled. Yeah, that's... <laughs> So yes, um, that's how that started. He wouldn't let me anywhere near a drum kit. And I think it was, you know, unlike our immediate gratification society of today, where, you know, as a teacher over the years, kids want to, you know, they want to get right on the kit and they want to play this song and that song. And I'm like, whoa, slow down. Let's work on your fulcrum and your grip and make sure you're cool and focus a little bit on technique before you hop on those drums. But I think, I think for me, because of my age, I think he wanted to be sure that I was really going to be committed and really into it before my parents invested in a drum set and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So lo and behold, they finally did. And that was that. And your first drum set was? A Silver Sparkle Slingerland. Unbeknownst to me at the time when I got it, Karen also played a Silver Sparkle. She was a Ludwig artist, but, I, you know, I ended up with the slings. And I believe they are a 1967 uh, variety. They're amazing. And I still have them, of course. You were playing in, I guess, junior high school or is that then you went into high school playing with different bands or did you play uh, in like an ensemble? I did sort of an array of the school stuff in grammar school. I did regular, you know, school band orchestral stuff. My school had a, um, they had just a smaller ensemble with, you know, strings and you know, selected instrumentalists. So I was part of that. And they didn't have any kind of a jazz band thing. So I didn't get to participate in that at any point. But um, by the time I got to high school, uh, I did ninth grade in school band. And they, I don't know, I felt like I was reading the same music that I started when I was in fourth grade. You know, it never got really that much more challenging for me. It was kind of the same thing year after year after year. And I just honestly kind of got bored with it and was already playing in garage bands at that point and starting to do gigs and things like that around town and whatnot. So I, that my interest kind of went there, went to the rock, you know, cover band thing. And I phased out of the, the school situation. Was it a, uh, do you remember some of the cover covers that you were doing back then and what bands oh, you yeah. were emulating? Oh yeah. We did uh, White Room by Cream. We did uh, Steppenwolf, Born to be Wild. Um, I believe there was a little Stones in there, some Jumpin' Jack Flash. Um, no, no Carpenters? <laughs> no Carpenters. <laughs> some no. Jumpin' Jack Flash some, to... Some uh, Hendrix, yeah, some Close <laughs> to You. No, it didn't, didn't quite go like that. Well, I sure as Sure as heck wasn't going to sing, so, uh, you know. Do you not sing? Not, not particularly well. I don't think anybody <laughs> wants to hear me sing, but, you know. I mean, I'm okay, but I'm, I'm, no, I'm no lead vocalist, and I'm no Karen, that's for sure, so. Mm. Okay. Did you ever sing in any bands that you played with? I did some backing vocals a little bit in a couple of bands, but, you know. And actually, some of the cover bands that I was in years ago, I did lead on a couple songs, yeah. So but. you're playing in... in 
cover bands back in in high school. Where'd you what town did you grow up in? I grew up in Montville, New Jersey, not Montvale. Montvale is Bergen County. Montville is Morris County. So about a half hour outside of Manhattan. Did you ever think of playing in marching bands back back in high school? I did. My my big conflict was that I was also a jock. So I was a three sport varsity athlete in wow. high school Didn't and went to, went to college on a partial softball scholarship at Penn State. So I sort of had the, the dual, the sp- split screen world of jock and musician. So they kind of collided occasionally. And I, I kind of, I think, favored the athletic side a little bit more in my younger years in terms of making some of those decisions, like not being able to play in the pit, you know, for the, for the high school production of whatever show, because I had softball and I couldn't juggle both, you know? So I kind of went the way of, of, uh, sports thinking that I might hopefully get a scholarship or that was, that was part of the goal. So that's kind of, that's kind of where it landed. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're going to go off on a tangent here. Uh Oh, softball. Yeah. Over the summer, I went to, I forgot where it was, but it was about an hour north of, of New York city. Cause we wanted to get out of town and we ran across a, uh, I guess it's, I don't know if it was Little League uh, girls softball and just watching them play and watching them pitch. I was like, oh, my God, this ball is going so fast. I mean, that's just Little League. I'd be scared to death being up there. <laughs> I can imagine high school and college. Yeah, it's, it's intense. When, when, when I played, they've since changed this. to Softball in its original, fast pitch softball in its original form, was very different from baseball. Baseball is very, you know, home run oriented, run production oriented, and softball was really about pre- precision. It was about, you know, one run games, one nothing, two, two nothing, two to one, and everything mattered. You had to be able to execute a bunt to move a runner, and you had, you know, it was like all of that perfectly precise execution, discipline, and things were happening at warp speed. So when I was playing in college, the pitching mound was 40 feet. It's now 43, but girls were throwing upper 60s, low 70s, which equates to, in terms of reaction time, well over 100 miles an hour at baseball. So the reaction time, that, and, and pitchers are throwing rise, balls, drops, drop curves, change ups, screw balls. So you get an array of movement, an array of planes coming at you at like, light speed so it was it was really awesome it was a great game i loved it really loved it excuse me again we're going deep into software <laughs> <Tangent. here. laughs> yeah, deep dive <laughs> well getting to drumming i just find this fascinating <laughs> since you know so much more about it than i do the 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 length of the uh the distance between the home plate and the pitcher's mind i never couldn't get i don't know all this stuff but if it's shorter and you're throwing at 60 miles an hour it's it's equivalent to you know uh, a guy throwing from further away at 90 miles an hour or is what's it's the you said the reaction time yeah so it would be it would be the equivalent from in my day and age at 40 feet um at the speeds that they were throwing then would be the equivalent of a baseball player at 62 and change whatever the pitching mound is in baseball 62 feet and, and inches 
um, would be the equivalent of a baseball player throwing, wow. I think it was like 110 or 105, so, like stuff that you don't see in baseball. So it's, it was pretty bananas. Yes, I played against, uh, in my summer league, I played against girls that went on to be on the Olympic team. So it was like that kind of <laughs> crazy competitive, high level insanity. <laughs> and it was very challenging and awesome. Getting back on the drum road. Well, what made you rant over? <laughs> edit. No, I'm not going to edit this. Mm -hmm. I might, but I I, I find it's it okay. You can free, you know feel free. No, this is all part dealer's of, choice. You know, you. <laughs> <laughs> it's all part of your life story. So you were, you know, the the dual track of athletics and drumming, and you, mm -hmm. you eventually chose drumming. You went to. Did you go to Penn State on a scholarship? I did. Oh, mm -hmm. really? I did. And it was for on a softball scholarship. Did you, what made you stop playing? Not an injury, please. Don't tell me that. Or oh, well, well, I mean, I played for a couple of, I played four years of college and then I played a couple of years after college. And the team that I had been playing on, the summer team that I mentioned playing against the Olympic level people, um, my coach stopped running the team. The team folded. And I loved that team and that's who I wanted to play for. And I didn't play the following summer and gotten picked up by another local team because you can expand your roster when you get to the nationals and all that stuff. And I got picked up to go to nationals. And, um, and that, was the last, that was the last time I played competitively. Since then, I mean, long after, I did have a, a rotator cuff injury to my right shoulder and I, had, I have uh, some screws and metal and things, um, you know, keeping this together. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So it's really hard for me to throw like I, you know, like I used to throw. It's it gives me it gives me trouble. So that officially put an end to any hopes I had of coming out of retirement. I didn't really. But, you know, I just, you know, there's no huge life for for softball after college. There's, you know, some pro stuff here and there. But it was it was long after I was too old at that point, you know, so did, did you pitch? Uh, I pitched in high school a little bit, but I was uh, primarily a third baseman. That was really, I kind of played a lot of different positions wherever the team needed me. So my freshman year, I was, I platooned at first base and third base. Sophomore year, I played second base. I caught a couple of innings in my junior season, but junior and senior year, I was at third base. And that's where I, I liked that the best and had the most success there. Do you have like a top five softball players that you looked up to or still look up to? Um... I don't know if I could give you a top five, but Lisa Fernandez was definitely a favorite of mine. Um, Dot Richardson, definitely a favorite of mine. Um, those are my, those are my two favorites. So on Penn state, did you play drums? Only when I came home, I didn't study music there. That's, that's the big regret for me that if I had to, if I had to start listing regrets, that would be, that would be a regret. I wish I had a do over on that one. I would still go to Penn state, but I would have, I would have pursued music again, the marching band thing. Yeah. I knew that you had to do at least one year of marching band. And I was afraid that it would cause division one sports are year round essentially. So I knew that I'd ha I have a fall season and it would interfere. And, and I sort of, let that scare me off instead of really trying to work it out and, and, you know, kind of deep dive and see if I could come up with a compromise or, or figure out a way to manage it. And I just kind of let it scare me off. So that's, that was a regret for me for sure. Now why Penn state in that Iowa or Wisconsin, or I don't know the top softball 
<laughs> schools, but why Penn State? Um, I really love the campus. I love the focus on academics with a really strong athletic um, emphasis. You know, we have a very, obviously, a very competitive sports program across the board. And I just, I wanted to go to a big school and I wanted to be challenged athletically and academically. And I just felt like it was a really good fit for me. Did you go to many of the football games? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I Is sure it the did. Nit- Nittany Lions? Nittany Lions. Now, what is a yep. Nittany, Nittany Lion? There's a mountain range nearby that's called Mountain Nittany. So they just, they, their mascot became, and they say it sort of looks like a lion. The landscape of the mountain range looks Uh, like a a lion. So it became a Nittany Lions. Do you still watch these, the, the uh, softball team on TV or do you not follow them? If they're on TV, they, they usually aren't because we're not one of the top, sadly, we're not one of the top programs in the, uh, in the country. We're competitive, but not really, not competitive enough that we're going to be on TV, but uh, they have alumni weekends and things like that. And when I can go, I, I go back and see my teammates and, you know, check in on things. So you didn't play much at all. Only when you came back, did you play mm-hmm. in and, you know, go play in any bands when you were uh, back in town or did you just play for fun on, on your own and practice? I just played for fun on my own when I come home. Um, and then I didn't really start playing out, <laughs> out in the world until after I graduated and moved back. Then I kind of got back into things and, you know, kind of went on my way. And you said as soon as you got done with college, you were like, you know what, I want to play musicals. <laughs> well, actually, as a, as, a, as a kid, I wanted to play musicals. So really? it's not, yeah, my mom was a really big she was a Broadway aficionada. She saw tons of shows and I have stacks of her playbills from the shows that she'd seen over the years. And, um, she used to bring us in. My parents split when I was 10 and it became something that she would do for us. You know, money was usually pretty tight in my house we didn't have an abundance of cash flow, and she would manage, you know, once or twice a year or whenever, whenever she could do it, or if the right show came along that she thought would be good for us to see, she would take us in and we'd go to lunch and we'd go see a show. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was, that was pretty life-changing for me too, kind of up there with, you know, first was Karen. And then a couple of years later was, you know, seeing my first, my first show. And what was the show that you liked the most? Oh, that's, that's a tough one. I've seen a lot of shows over the year that I've really loved, but I think the one that had the most impact on me was a show called They're Playing Her Song with Lucy Arnaz and Robert Klein and Michael Keller was the drummer. Oh, wow. Yes. And I told, I was able to share with him this story of, we had front row center orchestra seats and I was looking over into the pit watching the drummer like warm up and sitting behind the kit and whatever and thinking, wow, I'd love to do that. That's so cool. And it was Keller. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? (laughs) For those that don't know Michael Keller, he's (laughs) one of the contractors that hires musicians for Broadway shows. And uh, he hired me for Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill and hired many, many other people. He's a great guy, great drummer. And, uh, Overall, just great person. Absolutely. 
I got to sit with him when I was doing Head Over Heels. He was overseeing our orchestra rehearsals. So I got to meet him and, you know, kind of eventually get to this storytelling with him. And he was like, you know, that was me, right? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> it was kind of a weird, it was crazy, but yes. So my, my interest in Broadway started way back. And ironically enough, the first thing I did when I moved back home from college, <clears throat> my neighbor down the street, was a really active piano player in the community. She played for the church in town and she used to play. There was a theater, not, you know, I think it was on the other side of our town that I'd never been to, but she was really involved in a lot of things. And she called me up and she said, you're home for good now, right? You're you're back from school? Yeah, I'm back. I'm doing the show at the Rockaway Town Square Playhouse called Dames at Sea. And we could really use someone to play percussion. You want to come out, you want to come do it. I was like, yeah, great. I'm like, I haven't read in a couple of years. Can I take a look at the, you know, I was like all nervous about, you know, reading charts and stuff. And I was like, oh yeah, okay, cool. I got this. So that was the first thing I did when I moved home from school was actually play a show. Oh, wow. Yeah. I always thought, you know, just from my brief interactions in the past, I always thought you wanted to be a, a rock star. And, and... I did. I wanted both. <laughs> both. Both were very appealing to me. So I kind of had this dual, this dual vision of, of, of both things. But yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, with my exposure being, you know, Karen Carpenter, seeing Karen Carpenter on stage, I had visions of being a rock star. I was wanted to play Madison Square Garden and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But then a few years later, being introduced to Broadway musicals, I definitely had that bug as well. That was always, you know, present in my, in my brain. I can't remember if you did or didn't. Did you ever get a chance to play Madison Square Garden? I did not. My band um, opened three shows for the Rolling Stones and none of them were at the garden, unfortunately. Two were in Chicago. Wow. And one was in Baltimore. So right. we'll get to that. No garden that, for us. We'll get to that stuff in a minute. <laughs> but you got back... After uh, Penn State started playing in a musical, and after that, did you? You were you also. I'm. Um, I'm assuming you were playing in different uh, original bands back at that point, or how did you get involved in other things? My first segue from post local uh, theater show was um, one of my best friends from high school, who I just found out. Side note. Um, found out a few weeks ago, she'd passed away tragically. So I was, I'm still like a little moved and shaken by this whole thing, but it was because of Gretchen. Uh, she called me, she was a phenomenal singer, absolutely phenomenal. And she said, Hey, my band needs a drummer. Come down and audition. I was like, okay, cool. Another cover band. I always joke that New Jersey is like the cover band capital of the world. It's like, I don't know why every bar has cover bands and there's, it's hard to find original, like a good original thing happening, you know, select bars here and there, but it's really predominantly cover bands. So another reason to hate New Jersey for all, all you Jersey haters out there. (laughs) Um, So I I went down and auditioned and got into this band and, you know, played originals locally. And and we were doing an outdoor thing. I want to say it was like Memorial Day weekend or something. It was an outdoor concert in a park kind of a thing. And there were multiple bands on the lineup on the bill. And the band that was playing after us was an original band. And they had a drummer who um, was just kind of filling in for them. They were looking for somebody permanent. And they saw me play with this band and they approached me and they asked me to join that band. And then we started, I started working with them and we did stuff 
in New Jersey, but also in the city. So that began my, you know, having to drive into Manhattan with all my crap and <laughs> load in before most of these places got smart and got, you know, decent back lines, right? So I'm driving in and schlepping my drums and, you know, doing these gigs around town. And as it often happens, one thing leads to another and then into another really high profile cover band in New Jersey. And playing some of the really big Jersey Shore clubs and all that stuff in front of like 3,000 people and all that craziness. And then from the bass player in that band happened to be at that time in Antigone Rising. And they were switching gears and they, you know, she got me to, you know, get in for an audition with that band. And then I spent 20 years with Antigone Rising. So that's kind of the Cliff Notes version of, of that little trail post-college. So tell me about Antigone Rising. They were around before you joined them and uh did you they know were, about them before i did i only because of my bass player you know always talked about them and how great they were and then i started kind of keeping an ear out and was seeking them out you know i would go see them occasionally in manhattan and then they uh, they won a contest and they had an opening slot at jones beach for one of the years that lilith fair you know was in existence with sarah mclaughlin and all that so they were an, uh, an all-female rock band, essentially classic rock influence. But yeah, they, they formed, uh, the two sisters who started the band formed the band. They both went to Bucknell University and the band formed out of Bucknell. And as many bands do, they went through some lineup changes and such. And I finally joined, I entered the picture in late 1998 and was with them for 20 years up until I got called for my first show. So that was, you know, I segued away from them and and to Broadway. So you joined Antigone Rising and you worked with them for 20 years. You did all kinds of things, uh, touring in vans, playing in small venues, large venues. You recorded on some records, I, I'm assuming? Yes, we made lots of records. Um, we were signed. We had a record deal and, you know, did that dance for, for a few years and uh, had some great opening slots and had, did some bus tours and, you know, fly dates and TV appearances and sort of ran the gamut with all of that stuff. Um, our, our affectionate, the, the catchphrase that we would use affectionately amongst ourselves is pockets full of memories because we weren't like rolling in dough, but we had pockets full of memories. So. All right. Give me one of those pocket, give me one of those pockets of, of like reach into one of those pockets. <laughs> <laughs> give me one of the, I'm going to ask you two things. Give me one of the, the worst memories of those 20 years, the things that you'd like, I God, I can't believe that happened. Oh, well, perhaps under the category of dumbest thing we've ever done. Well, the, we had two moments like this. We were, we were just so committed um, to, try, to trying to make it work and to, to make things happen for ourselves that we just wouldn't say no. So we had a gig in Albany, New York. And the next day we had a, load, a six o'clock load in in like Greensboro, North Carolina. Yes. We slept for three hours. We joke about the Motel 87 off of the three-way that we slept in that we, we still joke about. We call it like a, a paper clip lock, you know, chain lock on the door. It was like, why bother? Because it was like, it was as sturdy as a paper clip. And there were like all these sketchy people in the parking lot. And I don't know what was happening. So we slept for three hours and we jumped in the van and we just, we went. 
and usually I can, I can always rally. I'm like, you know, I'd be sound asleep and somebody who, whoever was driving would be like, I'm tired. I need you to drive. And I would just wake up and be like, I'm good. Just get me coffee. I'll drive, you know, whatever. And that morning I was just done. I couldn't do it. And Kristen, who was least likely to be able to rally was like blasting Berlin's first album. And we just like blasted down the highway and we rolled in. I think we pulled in at like five fifty-five, <laughs> wow. but we got there and we did a similar thing. We were in Philly and then we had to drive to Rhode Island to catch a ferry to play block Island to open for the pop duo, Evan and Jaron, the one hit wonder, you know, pop duo on Block Island and we had to catch like a 7 a.m. ferry or 7.30 ferry to get the, the van and the trailer and all the gear over to, I mean, we just did the most insane things. We were just, in, we were just idiots. <laughs> Would you do it I mean, again if, if you were? Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. I would do every minute of that again. It was amazing. That's it's, cool it's, a, it's a younger person's game for sure. I mean, I couldn't do a lot of what we did now, 20 years later, because it's just, it's hard. It's, you know, yes. sleeping on, on benches and, you know, Kristen, my bandmate would, would always, uh, when we'd be on these excruciatingly long van rides, she would just say, she'd look at me and go, I just want to like unscrew my legs and take them off because I can't get comfortable on these benches. <laughs> it's just painful. It was really painful. But it was it was incredible, all the stuff we did and just being fearless and just not not taking no for an answer and just doing it, you know, just getting out there and doing it. It was incredible. All right. Let's reach into the other pocket. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Best memory. uh, One one, one of the best memories of playing with Antigone Rising. All right. I've got I've got two. We were opening for Aerosmith at the. PNC Art Center here in New Jersey, and they were running really late with their sound check. So we were like, let's just not sit in the dressing room and waste time. Let's just go hang out backstage so that as soon as they're done, we can get on and, you know, get this, make this happen. So we were hanging out behind the stage and Steven Tyler could totally see us. So he catches our eye and he's like kind of looking at us and they finished their sound check and he puts his mic down and looked and from like across the stage was like, hey, the girl band. And he comes running over to us and he's like hugging us. And hey, I had a really great old school Pretenders concert shirt on. He's like, oh, I love that shirt. Great hair. You know, he's hugging. Us. Can I get a picture with you girls? I was like, what the hell is happening right now? It was just so wow, awesome. And then the cool. other memory was with the Stones, we were we crossed by them backstage. I think maybe we had just come off from doing sound check or something and they were going on or whatever it was. And we walked by them in the hallway. Mick wasn't there. It was the rest of the guys. And Keith Richards pushes his glasses down to the end, you know, the end of his nose. And he mumbled something that none of us could even begin to tell what he said it was it was picture keith richards and it's exactly what you would imagine he was just like yummy and looking at the girl band and he goes and he walks away we were just like what the hell was that (laughs) (laughs) it was really awesome (laughs) yummy that's funny (laughs) yummy I mean, I would have been really insulted if it just wasn't Keith Richards. It just was so hysterical. I just was like, okay, whatever. It's classic. It was great. So you, did you stay on the, did you watch them from the, the wings or? Did yeah. You, really? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. Must have been cool. Yeah. 
and Aerosmith too. It was awesome. And the Allman Brothers. And they actually, they actually wanted, they came up to us by like the, the second or third night, you know, the first night we played with them, we did four or five shows with them. The first night they were nowhere to be found. The second night, I guess word got back to them from the crew that we, we were, could actually play and we were like pretty rocking. And then by the third night, they stuck around to watch our show. And then the fourth night they wanted in and they wanted to play with us. So they wow. came up and actually jammed with us on stage, which was really amazing. And even Greg came out and played keys. It was really cool. So those are, those are my three. So kids go out, get in the van, travel <laughs> from Albany to North Carolina. Do Be it. stupid. No. <laughs> I mean, there is something to be said about paying your dues, right? And we That's learned a true. lot. We became a great band. We learned how to function and listen and, you know, just be able to work together musically. And it was no better training ground than that, truly. It was incredible. So you did Antigone Rise and you played with them for 20 years, played on a few different records. Do you have a favorite record that you played on? Like if you were to say, you know what, this is pretty representational. Is that the right word? This album represents some of my best drumming, which would that be? Tough question. Some of our stuff was self-produced um, and self-released pre-record label. I, I kind of like some of the stuff I did on the last of those records called Rock Album, which Mick Rock actually did the photos for. So again, another like RIP moment to Mick Rock. Brilliant photographer for those who don't know. Um, and we went to the studio in Staten Island and we did a, a bunch of, of shots. And one of the reasons why we named the record Rock Album was A, Mick Rock did the photos, but more importantly, people didn't get that we were a rock band. So it was kind of like Rock Album. Here you go. Here's <laughs> rock music. Have at it. So um, some of the stuff on there I'm fond of. It's, it's raw and it's young, but it's... I, I listen to it now and it, it makes me smile. Like I'm pretty happy with, with some of that stuff. Um, From the Ground Up, which was our only label release, was done to be released in conjunction, to be released in Starbucks. Even though it was released on our label, the distribution, the first wave of distribution was for Starbucks only. So we sold like 250,000 copies of a record by sitting in Starbucks coffee shops across the, across the country. And it was done live in Sony Studios, and it was done um, intentionally us stripped down, done like a coffeehouse record. So it's more acoustic. It's not as rocking, so to speak. You know, no electric guitars or any of that kind of stuff. So for that reason, you know, it's, it's a little not representative because it's not a true rock record, but it's a really beautiful record. And I'm, I'm very proud of that as well. So... I would say. And then we had a lineup change, you know, we've kind of split and reformed and whatever years, you know, after the original wave and the first record we did with the new incarnation of the band called 23 red. I'm proud of the drumming on that record. So I, either, any of those three, they're all different, you know, each are different. So you kind of get a smattering of, uh, of stuff. If you list, if you were to list, drop a needle, so to speak on any of those three. He said, drop a needle. Talking about I eight, know. Tra eight Again. tracks, dropping a needle. I know. I can't. I'm old school. I can't help it. <laughs> Don't you judge. The, put the cassette in and you just fast forward. No, I can't. I can't do cassettes. 
Well, you you can stream it. <laughs> right. <laughs> we are on iTunes and Spot on all that stuff. So yes, you can find it out there in the world. We're we're all over that and YouTube and whatever. So yes. Is the Wise band, guy. <laughs> is the band still around? They are. They're working as a trio right now. Um, they're staying busy. They just did the Melissa Etheridge cruise. They're just coming off of that. And uh, they have a nonprofit organization called Girls Rising and they're doing incredible work and we're still in touch and we're on great terms. And, you know, we keep talking about getting me, you know, back in for a show here or there to, you know, sit in with them again. And we'll see if that materializes this coming year. So hopefully it will, because I miss my girls and I have a great time with them. So hopefully we can, we can make it happen. After Antigone Rising, you got into New York City playing shows. I did. What was the first show that you were on? A show called Head Over Heels, which opened in 2018. And it was uh, all the music of the Go-Go's. The story had nothing to do with the Go-Go's. It just, they used the Go-Go's music to tell the story, which many jukebox musicals do that. And um, they, they were looking for, since it was the music of the Go-Go's, they wanted, I guess, to be authentic in what the pit looked like, and they wanted an all-female pit. And, and that's how I got called. Um, you know, they wanted someone who had, I guess, the right experience and the right feel and flavor to, to play a book like that. And based upon what I've just, you know, vomited all over your podcast, as far as my, my experience and, you know, all that stuff. Um, you, you took, the, you I took guess, it out of your pockets. That's what the pockets that's of, right. what's it called? Pockets I of emptied what? my pockets. That's correct. <laughs> um, you, you get the, you get the, the feel for the, you know, my, my rock pedigree or my rock ex- experience and love of it and all of that stuff. So um, well, I ended, before, up, be, I ended before, up getting the call. Before you go on with that, you, with Antigone Rising, did, did you, did the band ever get pigeonholed where they wanted you to play with other female rock bands, which I guess there aren't very many. <laughs> uh, did you ever play with uh, the Go-Go's, like open up for the Go-Go's or anything? We opened for the Bangles. Okay. We never got to open for the Go-Go's, but we opened for the Bangles. Um, you know, it was an interesting, interesting thing. It was really a struggle for us through all of our years of touring, particularly as a young band with not a lot of marquee value, you know, right out of the gates, we were still, we didn't have a deal. You know, we were just grassroots, you know, we were touring and traveling and trying to sell merch and get our name out there. So any of the promoters who booked us, it, it you know, it just makes me laugh. It, it was infuriating actually, but looking back on it, it makes, it makes us all laugh that, somehow like girl music is a genre of music just because you're female you belong on the same bill together so they would put any female opener for us it could be it could have been like a bluegrass it could have been country it could have been folk it could have been didn't matter just because you're a female like that was the the logical opener and we're like can you put us on a bill with a rock band it doesn't need to be like, we're a rock band. Put us on a build with another rock band. That's going to help us grow our audience. If you're putting us with similar style of music, that's, hey, we like this band. We like that band. Great. You know, that'll help us grow our fan base. It was like pulling teeth to make it happen. So, so yes, we were always on, and that became our joke. We're on like girly night, you know, it was girly night everywhere we went. And it was just, it was 
just so frustrating. But well, uh, yeah. Speak, speaking of frustration, I'm going to share, or you're going to share something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to do it, whether you like it or not. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I'd like you to share uh-huh. a story that you, you shared on another podcast that I had mm-hmm. about the... the the sexism that you experienced during this time that a lot of people didn't even think was sexist, but you know, when, when you explain it, you're like, I can't believe you just did that. Like for instance, there was one thing you told me about, I mean, you can explain it better than I did, but I guess you were all showing up and they were like, they thought that you were there for something else or it's like, you. Like, oh, you know, no, no. I, I think I think it was just, I think it was as simple as um, oh so many stories um, we loaded in and I think you may have gotten the gist by the things I've already shared with you that we were idiots and you know sometimes we were driving really long distances to get to whatever gig we had the next day so we'd be exhausted and probably you know, underslept and underfed and under caffeinated and underhydrated and under everything. And we roll into this club for sound check. And I remember asking the sound man if we could please have some water because we'd been tra- traveling all day. And he was like, no. So we get, we get on stage to do our sound. And this is what it was like for us pretty much every day that we would do sound check. It was like we had to do two shows. We had to do the sound check. So we had to not only perform well for the sound check. I mean, it really was sort of a version of singing for your supper. And we had to look good for the sound check, even though we were driving all day and felt like crap and looked like probably a bunch of hags, but we were exhausted, you know? So before we rolled in, we'd put the makeup on and do the thing and make sure we looked okay and like had to be, had to look like a rock band. So we'd go in there, no, no water. Okay, we get on stage, we set up. Our lead singer just looked at us and gave us the look, like, bring it bitches you know and we just blasted into our sound check and just blew the doors off the place and we finished and then the guy was like oh you guys need water you here's menus you want to order some food you want to it was just like really okay so they assume that we can't play our instruments we were in a club in atlanta georgia and there was a patron of the club who saw us and other artists used to joke and were like you guys are so intimidating you look like a gang because there were five of us and we, you know, we dressed similarly, you know, classic rock influenced, you know, whatever. Like we were tough rocker girls, you know, one would think in looking at us, right? So the guy was like, oh, you're an all-female band. What are you guys like, Josie and the Pussycats? Wow. I was like, yeah, we're a cartoon. That's exactly what we're like. You nailed it. I'm like, what does that mean? Are you like Josie and the Pussycats? So, yeah, it was kind of like that was sort of the thing. But, yeah. That's one of the bad pockets of, of <laughs> you know what it, it isn't it was just it just was what it was, you know, and it was just one of the things that pulled us together more and rallied us and made us more motivated to prove to everyone that we were capable and we were a good band and we deserved to be on a bill, you know, that we could play our instruments, we could write great freaking songs and we were going to put on a show, a really great show. And, you know. I've got friends of mine, people in the industry who have seen tons of shows. And, you know, my one friend, Bobby, will always say to me, he's like, my two favorite live bands, Green Day and Antigone Rising. He was like, that was it, period. Like, you're one of the best live bands I've ever seen. And he's a sound man and he mixes live bands for a living and has done Run the Gamut. You know, we had that reputation and doing 260 shows a year, 
you're going to get that reputation. You know, you're going to get, you're going to build it. You're going to get good at what you do. So in that kind of adversity just makes you stronger. It's not, you know, it wasn't, we didn't really think that much of it. It was annoying, but it was totally fine. Definitely builds character. Mm-hmm. Yep. 260 shows a year. Yeah. For like three years, we, we ran that clip. That's I told you we were crazy. We were crazy. Well, now you can do eight shows a week. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> right. Without having to crawl out of a van. I just, you know, <laughs> step off the ferry. It's amazing. A whole new so world. <laughs> you, you wind up getting the gig at uh, Head Over Heels. Mm-hmm. And your experience doing Broadway, was it something that you were like, oh my God, what do I do next? Or how do I do this? Or was it something that you were somewhat prepared for based on what you did in, in the past or how did you handle getting such a, uh, a gig like that? Uh, well, I talked to, you know, everyone I knew who was doing it at the time for any pearls of wisdom that they could offer, knowing that, you know, I hadn't had any experience really doing this. Um, you know, my, my dames at sea at Rockaway Town Square Playhouse didn't exactly prepare me for, <laughs> for this. So, um, you know, good starting point when you're 22, but, you know, not exactly the, the preparation one would hope for in getting their first Broadway chair. But um, I, I, I don't know. I just, I trusted that my experience and particularly, you know, in that genre of music, would be the thing that would would get me through and my ability to listen and my ability to work well with others and follow direction and keep my mouth shut and just keep my eyes open and my ears open and pay attention and, you know, play well with others and, you know, all the requisite qualities of being part of a Broadway production. You know, I, I sort of trusted the process, so to speak. And, and some of my friends who had been doing it for a long time were really big proponents of the idea that, the best Broadway players come from that world of having toured and having worked elsewhere to kind of get your chops and get your feet wet and, and know how to be in a band, you know, before stepping into that arena. So again, I trusted that I was prepared in that way, even though I didn't have any experience in theater proper. How long did that run? Not long enough. Uh, it was such a great show and so much fun, but about eight months. Did any of the Go-Go's come and see? They you? did. Yeah, they did. They were, um, they were present several times. And actually, we did a, a promo thing during, I don't know if it was still during previews. Might have been at the end of previews, just prior to opening, where they, we finished the show and the Go-Go's actually performed. And Gina Shock couldn't be there, so I played drums with the Go-Go's for the, oh, for the cool. two, I think it was two, two songs or three songs. I think it was two. At the end of the, you know, when the show was over. Did you so ever get a fun. chance to meet Gina? I did. Yep. And I actually interviewed her. I did a, a feature on her for Modern Drummer Magazine. So I interviewed her and we spent a couple hours on the phone chatting and, you know, and they were just inducted, as some of you might know, they were just inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame and the Head Over Heels uh, playbill is, is in the Rock Hall. So that was kind of cool. Looking back. It was, you said eight months? Yeah. Did you have many subs come in to sub for you during that time? I had three subs. 
that I was carrying. So that was it for me. Um, I intended to, you know, to work as much as I could. And I didn't want, you know, I didn't have any, I didn't have a, a tour on the books or anything that was going to have me out of town for any great length of time. I had a few fly dates here and there and, you know, some freelance work, but nothing, you know, crazy that, that I needed a lot of subs at my disposal. So I thought three was manageable to keep them working and to, you know, not take off a lot. What were you looking for when you were hiring those subs? What qualities? Um, well, I, am a big believer for me personally in trying to pay it forward. People were very kind to me and letting me come watch when I was asking around town um, prior, prior to head over heels, even coming into the picture for me, I had started poking around and asking friends of mine who I knew to sit and watch them, you know, watch the book and kind of get a flavor for what things were like in a Broadway pit. And, um, was hoping to get some opportunities to sub, never which, none of which ever came to fruition. But, you know, I had sort of put my feelers out for that. And those people were really gracious with their time and allowing me to come into their space. And um, I know what it, what it felt like for me as an outsider to the Broadway community at the time that I got head over heels to be given that opportunity. It meant everything to me. And I tried to bring in subs when I do a show who have, who are are trying to break in and who are looking to kind of get in. So, um, I did that with, uh, one of my subs. I just wanted people who were capable and who I thought had, you know, the right personality and, you know, meaning all the things I mentioned before could play well with others and, you know, could take direction from the MD and, you know, could, could be good students because you're going to get notes and you're going to, you know, be asked to do things that maybe you weren't doing and you need to be able to make adjustments and do all that stuff. And people whose skill set kind of fit the book. So, you know, there was a request initially for the subs to be female because at the end of Head Over Heels, um, the band was on a platform and they're behind a scrim and it, it raised. And then all of a sudden, you know, oh, the, oh, there's a female band. Oh, look, you know, kind of a thing like the Go-Go's, but not the Go-Go's. And um, so, you know, the, the director, I think, was partial to the idea of all female subs. But, you know, in the spirit of doing right by the show and being inclusive and all the things that we all look to do when we're bringing people in, you know, there were there were men that were involved, too. It wasn't just, you know, for women. So that you know i had i had two women and and one one guy on my on, on my roster after head over heels closed did you mm-hmm. land another show after that interestingly enough yes the the night of our closing party tom kit came up to me and said hey i have another show for you i was like oh that's amazing <laughs> wonderful news what so um, Tom Kitt did all the orchestrations and was the music supervisor for Head Over Heels, just to tie that together. And he was at our, our closing night party and he pulled me over to let me know that. And um, he gave me the time frame, you know, we'll get in and we'll do some work, you know, we'll do a lab in May and then we're going to go out of town and the show's going to run at the Emerson Colonial in November and then we'll come to Broadway in the new year, new year being 2020. And we got to May and we got into New 42 and we were doing work. And about four days in, um, 
They had canceled a rehearsal day, which I thought was weird. And then we were asked to come in at three o'clock on one day, which was really weird and never thought anything of it until they told us that show was being canceled. There were creative differences and the show was being scrapped. So there went huh. at my, my show and I was like, oh man, <laughs> easy what come, easy go. <laughs> Magic Mike. Oh, I've heard of that. Yep. Oh man, that sucks. But that was in yeah. spring of 2020? Was it March? Uh, uh, it got it got <laughs> no, it got kiboshed in the spring of 2019. Oh, 2019. It was going to run in, at the Emerson Colonial in Boston in November of 2019, and then looked to come into Broadway early 2020. So, I mean, who knows? You know what would have happened at that point? I mean, we know what would have happened if we'd been open. Right. We wouldn't have been open for long. But you know, it, it that was a really good learning experience for me. You know, thinking that you have a show, this is amazing, and then it doesn't happen. And it happened to me, I was going to do an off-Broadway show during that summer, a limited run of an off-Broadway show, and the same thing happened with that. Oh, the producers didn't get their money. The show's not happening. And we had a theater, we had a move-in date, like it was happening. I had the, I had the charts, like it was, game was on as far as, as far as I knew and for whatever I thought, so... You know, tw- I think I, I think that happened. I think I lost those two shows within about three weeks of each other. Oh man! Yeah, must have did a, a number on your psyche. <laughs> Mike, is it me? Did I do something? No, I'm just teasing. Um, it was, uh, it, but another, you know, learning learning about the industry that these things happen. Probably more than people think they happen. You know, so yes, all the time. But then Little Shop came around, you know, a couple months later. And then later that year, I got called to do Kristen Chenoweth's for the girls at the Nederlander for a couple of weeks. So, you know, one thing, you know, two things went away and two things, two new things came my way. So. So tell me about Little Shop. How'd you land Little Shop? Um, A music, uh, one of the contractors reached out to me and said, um, I think you should take a meeting with this orchestrator and music director who who you don't know and he doesn't know you and he's looking to you know kind of broaden his network of people and work with some new people and he'd like to meet you and are you up for that he's he's working on a new show didn't know what it was didn't know anything about you know nothing was mentioned he said yeah great would love to so i went to the city and had coffee with will van dyke and will was like great it's a little shop of ours and it's going to be at the wet and he went through all the stuff and we start you know rehearsals next month and you know in august blah 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 are you into it i was like absolutely so that was that and that was that opened when uh that opened we started previews in september of 2019 and we opened october of 2019 in your experience working at head over heels even though you didn't actually make it to magic mike and the other things that you worked on but in those the past uh shows that you have worked on what do you think is the most important thing that a drummer should know about playing shows hmm the most important thing the most important thing that you should know in playing a show is that no two shows will be the same ever. And I know that sounds like a really simple, obvious thing, because I guess with live music, 
no two shows are ever really the same, but I think, I think with Broadway, there are so many moving parts and there's so many layers to a show that it's, it's beyond you as a musician and your band and your orchestra. You know, I'm saying band, my little shop, there's four of us. So that feels like a band on an orchestra, right? Small numbers, but, um, you know, there's just so many moving parts and it's really, really unpredictable in that way. And, um, you can never get complacent. You can never get comfortable and think, oh, I got this because this is, you know, I've done this, been doing this for two months or three months or four months or five months. It's not that simple. It's never that simple. It might, it might not be a challenge in terms of a major catastrophe every time you go into play, but there are enough subtle differences or potential wrinkles or things, little curveballs that come your way that you always need to be on your toes for. What do you think a drummer should never do while they're in a pit? <laughs> they should never, they should never think that they got it. They should never think like I've done this enough that like I'm cool because for that, for what I just said, it's going to be changing all the time and you can never think you can never get comfortable. My opinion, you might, you might disagree. You're far more of a veteran than, than I am. But uh, I think when you, when you start to, for lack of a better term, phone it in, right? You get really complacent or get really comfortable is when you get into trouble. You take your eye off the prize. You, you know, you look, you look off your chart, your mind goes somewhere else. You, then all of a sudden you go, oh man, wait, was, is this the, wait, what, where, oh, where am I? What's, oh, crap. <laughs> yes, that happens. It happens. You have to pay attention. Because. You have to be, I mean, I know that's, again, like you're stating the obvious, but you know, I mean, okay, I'm so going to be true. honest. When I toured all the years that I toured, there were times on tour when we were in a new market and maybe there were like a bartender and a doorman and two people in the bar and you kind of phone it in. Like your, your mind is somewhere else. You're thinking about, you know, I don't know, you're thinking about getting off stage and, you know, t taking a couple of Advil cause you have a headache or you want to go watch the Yankees game or you got like, whatever, you know, oh, the playoffs are now, I wish I could be, you know, and your mind just goes somewhere else. But in that environment, for me, that was doable. It's not preferred, obviously. Okay. I'm making a confession. You know, you never want to do that as a professional. You want to be in the moment and you want to be focused on what you're doing and present and all of those things. But you know, look, 260 shows a year, you're exhausted. That's going to happen from time to time. But, but it's easier to do it in that environment because not so many, there aren't so many moving parts and there's not so much riding on what you're doing. And, you know, I, I take what I do extremely seriously. I, you know, I'm sure you get asked this question all the time too, about how, how do you do the same show eight times a week and not get bored and this and that, and don't you, doesn't it get so boring? And it doesn't get boring for me. I don't get bored by it. It's a challenge every night that I go in there because you're seeking the perfect show. And really in terms of absolute perfection, I still haven't had it. You know, there's always things you can do better. There's always things you can nail better. There's, you know, there's always ways that you can be better, even playing exactly the same thing eight shows a week. There's always ways that you can be better. And if you, if you get away from that focus and you let your mind go somewhere else, 
you're going to be so far from that. And the people who are on stage, who the show is really about, you know, I joke about this in some of the clinics that I've done, you know, over the, over the shutdown, I was doing a lot of remote clinics, talking about how my work as a, a rock player pre prepared me for Broadway. And I jokingly say, if you think that a musical is about you as a musician, you're wrong because it's not about you. You're supporting what's happening on stage. It's not about you and blowing chops and showing off your fills and, you know, be trying to be the star, which you might be able to get away with in a band on a stage. But you can't do that in a Broadway show. That's not about you. People are depending upon what you're playing for every inch of their choreography, for everything that they do, for every, the phrasing of their vocal, for like every bit of minutia that they're doing on stage, you will affect that in every single way. In the fill that you do and your, and your dynamics and your, all of it. So you can't take it for granted and you can't take your eye off the prize. You gotta be there, you gotta be present. Some people have said on this podcast when they don't feel present and they don't feel uh, 100% and they don't want to phone it in, they take the night off because they'd rather mm. not be there than be there and, and phone it in. Yep. And even for myself, when there have been times where I'm, I feel like phoning it in, I got to make sure I, I refocus or take the night off. I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be here tonight and I'm not, I'm not fully there because like you said, there are times where I might hit a snare drum fill and that triggers the lighting cue, which triggers automation to come on right. and the spotlight to come on. And if I'm just like, you know, thinking about, man, I can't wait to, but tomorrow I'm going to cook some uh, fried, uh, fried okra. And like, <laughs> no, you can't do that. You can't start no. thinking about fried okra, even though I don't like okra. <laughs> One thing you can never do in the pit is think about fried okra, Clayton. <laughs> That's going to be a quote from me. <laughs> Stay away from fried okra. It's <laughs> bad for your heart anyway. Right. <laughs> so Little Shop of Horrors. Mm -hmm. Do you use your own drum set for the show? I do. I have a mix. I have electronics as well. Um, I am triggering Ableton. I am running Ableton for the whole show. So extra special reason to never think you can phone it in because you take your, you take your mind out of that and you miss a, you miss a cue big time. So, um, yeah, I'm, I, so I have like an SPD pad and I have foot switches and all that stuff, but yeah, I have, and I have my own, my own gears in there. Where did you learn Ableton? Cause I am unable, cause I don't know how to use Ableton, but it's a skill that a lot of pits, uh, might require. Tell yes. me about Ableton. I will tell you all that I need to know, all that you need to know. Sorry. Um, no, not really. I, I first, my first exposure to Ableton was through an online class that I took through Berkeley, I believe, many, many moons ago, because Ableton was just starting to be a thing. And I took some online classes, and I didn't really feel like it gave me a whole lot of information, but at least, like, some of it made sense to me, right? Um, and I never used it again beyond the class. So I get called, you know, Will was talking to me about Little Shop and Ableton and whatever. And of course, you know, I started, a, my hands started to sweat a little bit at the thought of all that responsibility and having to do all that. But I knew enough to know, A, that I wouldn't have to program it, um, which is really the hard, the super hard part. You, you really need a certain skill set for that. And I knew that I wouldn't be able to do that, nor did I have to. So that was cool. B, from my experience, 
at Head Over Heels, knowing what it was like to be in the rehearsal room day one of rehearsals, um, the focus is not on me. You know, the music director is focused on the actors and the singing and the ensemble and all of that stuff and not so worried about, am I playing the ink or did I miss a kick drum note here? Or did I miss a crash that, you know, that wasn't his focus. So I knew, and just the nature of rehearsals where you're on one number maybe for two hours, you know, or whatever the case may be. So I knew that I would have time in the rehearsal room to get comfortable with the rig before getting into tech, before getting into, you know, all that stuff. And I just committed to the fact that I would learn how to do it and I'd be okay. And I was. So that's how I learned was really in the rehearsal room. I didn't have any prior experience, you know, running it or being able to trigger it or doing any of that stuff. So. So in the little shop orchestra, (laughs) (laughs) the gang of four, as opposed to the the Antigone gang of five. (laughs) Mighty uh, gang. You're triggering a click track? You're triggering sounds? All of the above. Most of it is on click. There are key two parts. There is percussion. There are some sound effects. Wow. Um, So like the top of Act 2, for example, the number is called Call Back in the Morning. And Audrey and Seymour are doing this bit where the phones are ringing in the flower shop and they're like answering the phone. So all the phones that are ringing are coming from the Ableton. No pressure there when you miss a cue and they're like, they're picking up a phone and it's not ringing because you screwed something up, you know? So these are the joys. Um, but yes, so it's kind of a mixed bag of stuff that's happening through the Ableton. It's interesting. You talk about playing the same show every night, but trying to get it right. I recently recorded, um, audio versions of the show for my subs that are going to start coming in for ain't too proud. And when I started recording myself, I was like, okay, I'm going to get the entire show perfect to give it to them. But then you start making little mistakes here and there. You're like, just damn, I could have done this better. Itty bitty, right? Just like the little, end of oh. the, yeah, at the end of the song, I was like, I'm going to get this feel. I'm going to get it. And then you start thinking about it. Yeah. And you, you screwed it up. But, you know, there are times where sometimes I listen back. I'm like, oh, my God, that sounds great. But you want to try to do the same thing the same way every night. And it's. Sometimes it's just really difficult to do, but it's a challenge to try to get that level of consistency the same every single night. Absolutely. Which is something I'm sure that you do every single night at Little Shop. Absolutely. I, I try. You know, I, I, that's my goal for sure. My focus is always there and trying to really, and trying to nail it. You know, something as elusive and silly as like, I have two wood blocks off to the side and sometimes it's like a blind, you know, a blind hit because I'm, I don't know, turning a page or and like the stick will just slide off a little bit and I don't get a clean hit on the, in the center of the wood block. You know, something that's, you know, silly. It's like, ah, oh, there goes yeah. my perfection. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, wood block. <laughs> <laughs> Woodblock foils you again. Uh, <laughs> you have your drums in the pit. Are you using pearl drums? I am. I see you have that pearl shirt on. Yes, this is brand new. Isn't it sweet? It's, I love it's that. very similar to this one. It's nice. I know. <laughs> Got the baseball, the, the baseball yes. jersey kind of thing going on, right? The stripes. Um, yeah, very pearl. Cool. The shells are, for all you gearheads out there, reference pure shells music city custom 
is the I have the wraps, so they are um, actually I used them at Head Over Heels. The show had purchased two drum kits because I had one in the in the actual pit room where I was all by myself, and then there was one up on stage that I would have to run up two flights of stairs for the reveal at the end to get behind that kit. That's the one that I bought back from I bought from the show, um, and. It's sort of like a vintage orangey sparkle, gold, orangey gold kind of a sparkle thing. It's cool. Five piece, 10, 12, 14, 20 inch kick. So it's a smaller, a little bit of a smaller setup. You have other endorsements? Do you have an endorsement with Pearl? I do. I'm a Pearl artist. Uh, I also endorse Zildjian cymbals, Evans drum heads, Promark drumsticks, uh, drum tacks. Sledge pad. Are you familiar with sledge pad? No. It's um, a really great kick drum dampening system. And it's vented. So the way that the foam is vented and the way that it sits, it allows airflow, but it also gets rid of the extra, you know, annoying possible resonance frequencies, whatever. Um, so that's a really, that's a really great product. Um, SKB cases, ultimate ears and big fat snare drum. Ultimate ears. Tell me about ultimate ears. Do you use my in ears? My fitted. My, my yeah. I use I use in ears. I have um, just be, because of the click and Ableton situation. I had them set up for me in my booth when we did our seating. I did a sec, a second Aviom, um, which for those of you who don't know what the Aviom is, it's sort of our monitoring system. We plug headphones into that and we can dial up our mixes for whatever we need through the Aviom. And I had them do a secondary one to my right. And I have a pair of traditional uh, cans, isolation headphones plugged in and ready to go in the event that anything were to happen with my primary, either my primary Aviom or my, my in-ears, my buds, I could rip them out and just grab the cans and go and there wouldn't be an interruption hopefully with the click and you know all that stuff um so yeah so i use my in-ears there and i use them for other live gigs where wherever i can use them if there's you know um the opportunity to do that with a power you know power pack and all that stuff that's just my preferred my preferred way i like to isolate as much external stuff as i can well, this is all going to be new for me because I recently uh, connected with Empire Ears and I'm getting my first set of in-ears in another nice. couple of weeks. So Great. Are they like night and day from like the, the at the show that, uh, what I have now at the show, they're sure, I don't know, I forgot what model number they are, but is it like night and day? Well, do, do your current cans isolate the external? Do you get like a lot of drum isolation or do you get a lot of bleed through your cans? Do you hear no, a lot of yourself? It's, it's pretty isolated, but I understand when you get molds and it goes right in your ear, it's, it's, it's going to sound a lot better. Yeah, it's nice. I, I really, I prefer it. Um, plus I, I get, my ears get bothered when I have stuff, when I have the cans over my ears and because I wear glasses to be able to read my charts having an external mechanism pressing into my head, it just, it bothers me after a little while. So the in-ears are just easier for me. Um, I don't have any of those issues with my glasses or that my ears getting sore or any of that kind of nonsense. 
So it's, it's a preferred setup for me personally. When, since you come from um, the rock world and you're playing songs that you have to have memorized in your head, you don't have charts. It's not very rock and roll to have charts, uh, you know, the Antigone rising stage. <laughs> you wouldn't want to be playing with, you know, opening up for Aerosmith and having charts. It's not cool. <laughs> so not cool. Especially if you got, you know, your gang going up there. So <laughs> did you uh, memorize Head Over Heels after a while? Did you memorize Little Shop? And do you keep the music up there for reference or do you actually read it? What's your... Uh, your mode of operations in a pit. Do you memorize I, or do you watch the music? I um, just, you know, from, ha- from doing it over and over again, obviously you will retain a lot of that. I, I didn't make an, a deliberate attempt to get off book, you know, to go home and work on it so much that like I could memorize it and get off book for me because there are so many, because of said moving parts that I referenced earlier, vast amounts of moving parts. I, I find it possible and maybe even likely that something could happen at any moment to sort of throw you and, and jar you. And that could, again, this is just me. Um, if I'm trying to you know, be off book entirely, it, it could throw me to a point where I might feel vulnerable without having my ink in front of me. So my charts are always up. Some, some moments I do have memorized and I'm not reading, I'm just playing, but they're, it's open and it's there. So um, it just really depends on the tune. It depends on the moment. It depends on the, the section or the passage. You know, um, what I'm playing, if I feel like I need to look and be focused on, you know, uh, precision, I might want to take my eyes off to, to make sure that I'm like the wood blocks that I mentioned or something like that. You know, I have to get to a triangle, even though I'm using my Miller machine, you know, I still have to look to make sure I hit it in the right spot and all that kind of stuff. So there is a certain element of, of knowing it well enough to be able to get your eyes off the book. And for subs too, like you should know what you're playing well enough that you can get your eyes off to check in with the, with the, the monitor and check in with the MD you know, and get back to your ink. Like you shouldn't be a slave to that. You know, you have to look, you have to look kind of a thing all every second. Um, not to say that you have to be off book to go sub a show. I just mean you should be able to go back and forth. You should know it well enough to be able to do some of that. Um, especially moments where you need to get cues. Right. So, um, I, I just don't feel comfortable being off entirely personally. How far I away blanket. How far away is the uh, conductor from you in the pit? Oh, he's, um, so we're both, so the band is separated two and two. Um, so as you enter, we have to go up a crazy spiral staircase to enter the stage area and you enter stage right. So directly above that staircase is a platform where the MD who's playing piano and the guitarist sit and then directly opposite that platform stage left is a quick change booth and they built a slight extension over the top of the quick change booth where my drum booth is and the bass player um my bass player sits just outside of my little drum booth area which is only the doorway is really only two little curtains it's not even a a hard door they're just they had they had a build they had to build it out of like plywood and you know whatever so it's it's uh 
We call it the treehouse. We have to literally climb up a metal rung ladder to get to the platform. So we're we're literally opposite sides of of the stage from each other. Uh, one other question about Little Shop. On Broadway, I subbed for Rich Mercurio. It's one of mm-hmm. the first few shows that I subbed. I remember the first couple of times the the plant didn't work, or there was some. Oh problems no. With it. <laughs> They had to like stop the show because the plant, I guess maybe the, the mouth was open and didn't close. Is there is there a big plant on stage? Is it? Oh, there's a big plant and we have two puppeteers inside the plant doing it manually. They're actually, really? yeah, there's like a 25 pound counterweight in the back of the big, the big Audrey too, like the mm-hmm. big, you know, when it gets to its, you know, end stage size, it's really big and it takes two guys in there maneuvering that thing one in the front i think one in the front one in the back or i think they go front to back it's bananas how they do that thing it's crazy <laughs> but it's so cool it's really impressive i need to come see that show yeah it's really great it's a great great production it's from what i understand it's very very true to the to the original there were five women in uh antigone rising originally yes Okay. That was the original, yes, our original lineup was five. There are five in Antigone Rising, your gang. If you had five drummers (laughs) to form a gang, what are your five, like top five drummers of all time? You were going to put them against. Uh, (laughs) I hate this question. I'm just going to say it. Why do you hate the question? I'm curious. I don't know. It's just, it's because it's such a subjective thing and people get all bent out of shape and all worked (laughs) up over, how could you pick that one? Oh, he sucks. You know, it's like, Um, (laughs) well, you know, before, before you go on, I stop tell people my top five are Tony Williams, Tony Williams, Tony Williams, Tony Williams, (laughs) Tony Williams. Now. That's well done. I like that. That's great. So there's no argument well, there. So clearly for me, Karen Carpenter, Ringo, Steve Smith. Yes. Um, Steve Gadd. And, uh, you know, again, it's just, I don't know. I could easily go Jeff Picaro. I could easily go... Bonham, I could, you know, it's just, I'll, I'll say Jeff Picaro. I mean, just how because. You choose him. I, I, I know. I'm just You're out. This is over. Exactly. We're done. And Click. <laughs> I'm going to publish this motherfucker. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's so hard though. I mean, I grew up, you know, I listened to a lot of Billy Joel as a kid. I loved Lib, Lib DeVito's stuff. You know, that was hugely influential for me. I loved Martin Chambers. The Pretenders were like, oh my God, just unique, great rock stuff, you know? So it's, it, that's a, it's, a t- it's a hard question. It's like, who do you think are the greatest? Who are the most influential? Who are the yeah, most important? Yeah. You know, it's like flip a coin. It's, there's a lot of really great ones out there. So, but those are my five. For now, today. <laughs> Until tomorrow, they might change. <laughs> That's great. So are you working on any projects uh, at the moment, musical projects or any other kind of things? Um, no musical projects right now. Um, I had done a couple of readings of a new, new show prior to the 18-month you know, lockdown. So we'll see if that resurfaces at any point. I hope it does because it was really a lot of fun. Um, 
And then just, you know, freelance stuff around town. Um, I'm doing a, a uh, fundraising event at Cipriani Monday night, you know, and just other gigs. I did something to Bitter End last week and um, doing some mentoring and home recording and just, you know, a mixed bag of stuff, staying busy. So like we all do, I imagine. Where can people find you on social media? Um, I'm not even going to give you Twitter because I'm the worst with Twitter. I just, I can't, I don't like, I don't like that forum, forum at all. It's just not right for me, but um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and at Dina Toriello. And my website is dinatoriello.com. So you can reach me there. Um, there's a direct email option. If anybody has any questions or wants to say hi or wants to yell at me for my choice of drummers, you know, that's where you can find me. (laughs) (laughs) They could say, I can't believe you picked Joe Picaro. Jeff Picaro, not Joe, not Joe. You did say Jeff, correct? I did say Jeff. Do you play softball still? No. Not at all? No. You can't, (laughs) I mean, not throwing the ball, but get up, getting up and, 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 hitting a few balls and no never really oh nope. man Just, nope i haven't done it in a really long time is it because you might get injured or you just have no passion for it or are you just like uh i i don't know that's a good question i guess if i could come across a legit um batting cage for for soft for fast pitch softball i might i might reconsider but i don't know of uh of any that or near where I live, that would make it easy for me to do that. I suppose with a little effort, I could figure it out, but I don't know. It just feels like the ship has sailed. I, <laughs> I was so fascinated by this fast pitch softball over the summer. I'm going to come pick you up. We're going to go find a place and okay. you're going to show me. <laughs> I'm going to get you back in the game. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Or probably I'll try pull to, muscle two months, two minutes in. I'll be like, oh. <laughs> We're both going to be out like, oh, my God. i got ice packs so, on my shoulders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Well, <laughs> it was very nice talking to you. Thank you for being a part of my podcast. Thank you for having me. So much fun. People can reach Dina at her website. She's an amazing player. Go see her show. Do you still do uh, uh, clinics at all? I do, yeah. Once again, Dina Toriello, Little Shop of Horrors, and many other great things in the future. Thank you once again. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Head over to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page where you'll find unedited conversations that I've had with some of your favorite musicians. On the YouTube page, you're going to find bonus content that I don't feature on my Instagram page or here on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and click on that little bell at the top so that you'll be notified when a new video is uploaded. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more. Thank you.